What is author marketing mastery through optimization, you ask? I'm going to tell you. It's the best way for us authors to make a living selling our books. Are you tired of hearing gurus tell you your book is only good enough to be a lead magnet for services? Are you tired of feeling like you have to be a slave to social media and then frustrated when that time doesn't actually help you sell books? I was too, until I found Ammo. Ammo is the only program that reliably produces results and it works for anyone. Is it hard work? You bet. Do you have to overcome some of your own prejudices to make Ammo work for you? Absolutely. But rather than being another program that rah-rah shish-goom-bahs tries to get you emotionally excited only to offer unclear methods, Ammo shows you how to design profitable ads step-by-step through a unique, never-before-tested formula. The founder, Steve Piper, is a data-loving, formula-driven author who escaped the kingdom of Amazon to build a platform for himself where he sold directly to his readers and built a loyal following. With Ammo, you know who's reading your books, how to contact them, and what they want to read next. If you've always been frustrated with Amazon's wall of mystery, of not knowing who's reading your books, of losing 50 to 70% of the hard-earned money you make through book sales, Ammo solves all of those problems by putting you in the driver's seat and showing you how to fulfill your books directly to your readerships. Click the link in the show notes to learn more. I barely managed to survive the fair, the Oakland fair, the Burt County fair, but I did survive. I'm still here and I'm bringing you an episode with my second time guest, Haldane B. Doyle, also known as Dr. Shane Simonson. He introduced me to some of my favorite people, Michael J. Sullivan and Robin Sullivan. I would not be with Ammo right now if it weren't for Michael and Robin. They are not in the Ammo program, but they use the very same direct fulfillment process that is what makes Ammo so effective. And so grateful to uh, Shane slash Haldane for the help right there. And I'm excited because what Shane has done is he has broken down his entire process of publishing his debut novellas. Uh, It is a biological science fiction series. The first book is a riot of a read. I highly recommend it. I think you'll get hooked in and want to read the remaining three. Uh, It is a conclusive, rather long story when put together, uh, and it can be read very comfortably as a single volume. Uh, It can also be read very comfortably as four novellas. They have distinct endings each, um, and it's a lot of fun. He didn't have the kind of success that he hoped for, but he also has a very strong perspective about building momentum slowly through a lot of inexpensive actions. If you're the kind of person who hates to spend money on marketing uh, at a high level, I completely understand where you're at, and uh, Ammo might not be the right program for you because it is costly to join. Uh, Shane's Way may be the right choice for you. So even though this is the Ammo edition of the podcast today, we're talking about another way that might uh, serve you. Hope you enjoy my conversation here, and if this intro seems a little lower energy than usual, That is what happens when you follow children around at a fair for four days in the sweltering summer heat of Nebraska. All right, 
Let's get on to my conversation now with Haldane B. Doyle. This is TRBM Ammo Edition. If you're a published author and want to make a living writing books and selling them to avid readers, you've come to the right place. There's simply no program that's more successful at driving readers towards the books you've written. So the only thing you have to worry about is writing a great book. And the system with Enamel takes care of the rest. Thanks for listening to this conversation. You're here because you published a series of novellas that are all interconnected, um, very much like um, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Craig. The subject matter is a bit like Oryx and Craig, but way yeah. forward in the future. Um, the structure, yeah. I would say, is a little bit more like Hyperion, maybe, in that okay. it's like a series yep. of stories that all link together. Yeah. Okay. And it's biological sci-fi, which I read Oryx and Craig long before I met you. I mean, years and years before I met you, uh, while I was a traveling salesman running around the... Uh, inland northwest of the United States. So so Washington and Oregon on the dry side of those states. Um, and I just remember, so I was listening to audiobooks while I was driving and thinking, these are really, really special books because they're not sci-fi in the way that you think of sci-fi, but they're certainly not just adventure books. Um, they take mm-hmm. place in a very recognizable, almost post-apocalyptic kind of world. And so I really enjoyed uh, that experience. And so when I when I ran into your book, I still only read the first novella in the series. Shame on me. But I That's enjoyed okay. it. And I immediately recognized that kind of setup of like biological sci-fi. It made sense. I never knew that there was a, a specific subgenre. So I want to start out by having you explain a little bit about that. And I think that that probably goes a little bit into your uh, your farming policies, uh, uh, practices, mm-hmm. and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So please take a little bit of time to talk a little bit about how you got to this genre through the work that you're doing right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I'm possibly in the Duma camp, if you uh, if you understand that community, people who think that our current version of industrial civilization has an expiry date. That, And I don't think that's a, a fringe perspective anymore on the world. We, I think a lot of people are worried about the way our civilization is going and how long it's going to last. And that kind of, the common thing is, It'll divide people into two camps. There's those that think, oh, no, technology is just going to keep getting better and better. We're going to have Star Trek. We're going to be whizzing around the galaxy. It's all going to be wonderful. And there's another camp that says, oh, it's all going to turn into Mad Max and it's going to be like a nightmare. And those seem to be the only two visions that are on the table for our future. Yeah. And I, I think that's a a stunning poverty of imagination that those are the only two options, either more and more technology or no technology. So um, I looked around and it's like, what's the only truly renewable resource that we have? And that's biology. Uh, Like the great civilizations, like the whole, you know, the, the kingdoms of Babylon were built on the domestication of a couple of key crops that completely changed the way that humans related to their landscape. And, Humans changed in that process as well, too. We, we underwent uh, selective evolution 
So I'm really interested in the possibilities of what the future could actually present to people. So I created my books around that idea to explore a hard science fiction future where you strip away all of the mechanical technology that we're so dependent upon today and rebuild society just based on biology. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no, well, there's a little bit of magic that's also tied to a scientific theory, but that's a kind of peripheral framing story. The day-to-day life in this world is all based on biological technology. Yeah. Uh, Okay, this will sound juvenile, but there are definitely people who are listening right now who hear any word that sounds kind of like science and like, ah, it's not for me. Tell me, tell me, give me like a very rudimentary definition of of biology for people who are listening and and maybe you're like, I I, I still don't maybe get it. (laughs) Um, well, see, this is the interesting thing. Even biologists argue about <laughs> where the edge of life is, um, both in terms of like, a, a, you know, a tree is something that everyone would agree is alive. But when a tree dies, what's the point when it's no longer alive? But they, and they're kind of peripheral philosophical issues. Mm. Um, but in this society, um, humanity has become more more like an ant nest in a way, which I think isn't the most unique thing in the world, Um, but mostly in that the individual members are expendable, I think is one way of looking at it. And humanity has already started this transition. So through the power of culture and religion, individuals self-sacrifice for the greater whole, for their people. Like that's that's a, a very common thing that's in before civilization, humans would have done that to some extent. Um, but in the world that I'm imagining in the future, humanity has changed themselves in a way that both biologically and culturally, individuals no longer have any fear of death. Mm-hmm. And dying is a quite ordinary thing that happens when you're no longer needed by your society. It isn't a tragedy, um, but there's no suffering, there's no disease, there's no hunger. Everyone has a pre-assigned role. And when that role is completed or you you fail to perform in that role, you're no longer needed. So it's yeah. um it's a completely different way of looking at death. And I almost wonder if in today's industrial culture, it teaches us to be afraid of death in a way that's beyond what would otherwise happen. Um I, I think I think we're I don't know, you you look at history and people's perspective on death and dying was very different not that long ago, um, either because they believe that religion was promising them some reward at the end of it, um, or just that they lived in nature and they saw things living and dying all the time. Whereas in, our, in a modern insulated world, it's all kind of hidden away from us and it's mysterious. And uh, we tend to fear what we don't understand, what we don't experience. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure where any of this piece of the conversation is going to go because it's certainly not necessarily for authors but uh this 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 morning um uh my my wife and i so our house was built 200 years ago and it's not a very effective house for a modern family but so we've got a a giant master bedroom with no attached bathroom or anything but it's got like a little sunny nook that has a curtain rod across it i can close that and work privately but for the most part like my bed is right behind me where she's sleeping in the morning when i get up she likes more sleep in the morning i prefer more sleep in the evening and so you know we go to bed at the same time but she'll sit up doing whatever for like a couple of hours while i'm 
peacefully sleeping. And then I wake up in the morning a couple of hours before her. Anyways, the, the whole reason I'm saying this is because this morning when I woke her up, I was, I was talking about the idea of heaven in the future. And so I think anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I grew up a Christian. I'm now not exactly agnostic, but kind of closer to agnostic than in any kind of religion. And I was saying, it's really funny to think back on the biblical text that say like, do good deeds right now because you get treasures in heaven. And yet inside of the Bible, there's also the claim that everything you're going to get is like perfect. So you die and if you believe in Jesus, then you're going to go to a perfect eternity. And I'm like, what's the point of treasure if I get perfect? I want the reward <laughs> right now. I don't want I don't want to delay him. I need him now. His life is tough. Life is hard. Uh, and so as I'm listening to you talk about biology and life and death and grappling with the subject of death, I will admit that I'm somewhat afraid of it. Uh, I'm at the time in my life where I'm starting to think about dying. Um, one of my best friends happens to be a cat. Uh, he's been with me for 15 years. He has breast yeah. cancer. I've been giving him uh, turkey tail mushrooms every single day for almost a year now. As soon as I found out that he had that, I, I, I discovered that, that was one of the best ways to combat it. I've really been just like loving on him, trying to give him all of the support I can. He's probably going to lose the battle. And I have a hard time not thinking that I eventually get to see him again. Like if I lose him and that's it, it's hard for me. And death is hard for me. And I lost my grandpa this year on February 28th. I dedicated my second book to him. Death is fucking awful. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that from your perspective without, I, I'm not even going to respond to you necessarily. We might just do a hard transition mm -hmm. after this. I just would love to hear you talk about it because science and death is really hard for me to deal with. And, and since I feel like I trust you a whole bunch you're not going to bother me by whatever you say. I just, I'm, I'm really curious to kind of hear you respond if that's okay. <laughs> we didn't plan this by the way. <laughs> yeah, no worries. No worries. Um, so yeah, I, I think part of my perspective on life and death is informed by living on a farm, which yeah. for the majority of the last few thousand years for the majority of the population, that's how they live their lives in amongst other creatures that were living and dying often at their hands um, and even in society, like it was quite common for people to be executed for crimes and for that to happen in a public space and for everyone to see it. Or if people got sick or, you know, they got old or they got diseases, they would die in the home. So death was something that happened uh, that people were familiar with. It wasn't this kind of uh, unseen shadow lurking around corners. So I... My personal view is that people had a very different relationship with death until the modern era when it almost became industrialized in itself, like the, the hospitals. Anytime someone is close to death, they kind of get whisked away and you barely get to see them for, you know, 15 minutes at a time during their final run. Um, and the death industry, um, the funeral industry kind of went into overdrive as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think a lot of people's fear of death comes from just being separated from it, that it's become mis more mysterious than it needs to be. Interesting. Is it final? Is that, is that your sense, though? I mean, do, do you think death is final? Probably. Uh, personally, uh, no. No, I, I, I don't think so. Okay. I, I'm actually, pe people often, like, 
maybe this is just a human thing. We're, we're often really obsessed about what happens after you die. Yeah. I'm really curious about what happened before I was born into this life. I think that's an equally interesting question. Sure. Oh, dude. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, I, I was thinking today, uh, we have, I live in a small town of about 900 people. And so twice a week on Tuesday, Thursday, I guess technically Saturday, I just, Saturday is like a sacred day to me. I'm never going to do that kind of work. But Tuesday and Thursday, we can take our trash to the dump. And I was walking my trash can out and I uh, I broke a rib or cracked is more uh, appropriately the term. I cracked a rib uh, this last weekend at the lake, having too much fun. And uh, I can feel it, but it actually mimics what doctors say a heart attack will feel like coming on. And so as I'm carrying my trash can out to the van, like I felt that kind of like radiating heat and pain in my left side, like right up by my, my arm, my shoulder area. And I was like, what if I were to have a heart attack right now and just die? Like, what would it feel like for me in that moment to just be dead? Would I know that I was dying? Would I fall down and it was all over and it's just black, fade to black, gone, I'm gone. And there's no pressure because I'm gone. Like no more thinking faculties. Or am I whisked away into some alternate place to have another experience I love what you say about birth because I, I have never thought about that before. Like, what what was it like before I was here? Obviously, I would love to be around for JFK. Um, and by the way, I'm very much a, a U.S. based kind of person. I know that Australia has a history. I just don't know it uh, in a very classical U.S. kind of person fashion. I don't understand the rest of the world the way that I should. Um, I am close to bilingual now, fairly close. Uh, I could speak quite a bit of Spanish, but. I am very American and very capitalist accidentally or just like submerged in that culture. But the idea of dying just lately has really been on my mind. And I, I think that your fiction speaks to it, whether you want it to or not. Um, so I, I don't know that I'm asking a response from you right now, but if I provoked any thoughts, please feel free to share. Well, um, one thing I didn't put into the um, the autopsy outline, because um, mm -hmm. that was uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about today. Um, I, I wanted to get your feedback, because you've read one of my novellas, and yeah. you're very kind to to put a, post a review. But I just wondered if you had any uh, constructive suggestions for, for where well, I could develop okay. my writing further in the future, because I'm very open to that. So where you and I differ a little bit, Shane, is that, um, and this is true of even myself, I need other people around me to give constructive feedback because I am deeply immersed in experience and I don't actually ever think of how something could be different. I only think of how it met me. And like I said, mm -hmm. when I read your book, I was actually reminded of Margaret Atwood. We had talked about it before uh, I even read it. So I was probably primed to think of it in that way, but mm -hmm. the dialogue between the characters was so, I, I felt like so snappy and so fun and so, elevated in a non-actual dialogue way. So if there's any feedback for you, it's that if you didn't intend for your dialogue to feel, uh, not educational, it's not exactly the word, because when I read it, I felt like I'm learning from the way that they're speaking. They're, they're saying things to each other that are true statements, but that are not in a frame of reference for the way that I would speak to somebody. If that makes sense, am I, or, or, is that like hitting home at all for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's tricky. <clears throat> it's tricky when it, it's almost like an orphan genre 
So, like, when someone wrote the first, you know, Dragons and Swords fantasy, they had to do a lot of extra legwork to kind of establish everything. But when you write the 100th Sword and Dragons fantasy, there's all of these established tropes. Like, you can just say, oh, a vampire walked into the room and people already have this baggage. Yeah. Yeah, You don't have to do all of the, all of the work establishing what that is. And I think this is one of the, um, the challenges of taking on, I think it's like an orphan genre, this, this biological science fiction, there's kind of, there's a couple of examples, but yeah, it's, it, yeah, but particularly compressing it into a novella length and making it satisfying, I think was a challenge too. So one of the things I want to be careful too for the listeners actually is that I don't you you did not fall into the world of expositional dialogue, which is a big no no. If you're a writer and you're listening to this podcast, I don't typically deal with this side of the world because it's not what I'm interested in. Like I assume if you're paying attention to my podcast, you've already written a good book, you've edited it, you know what you're doing, and you're actually worried about marketing it. But in this case, I, I just want to say because you're asking for actual feedback on my reading experience. I'm not saying it was expositional dialogue. I'm saying that it was it was stylized dialogue. So I think about people like Joyce Carol Oates um, to a degree. Uh, the guy John Updike. John Updike is is one of the masters. Whether you like him as a person or even his work, stylized dialogue. He was so good at it. Where mm-hmm. you actually think about the story situation and you realize that two human beings don't speak to each other. Um, uh, James Joyce is another one. Like mm. the way that they speak is not actually mirroring the way that humans speak. But at the same time, when you read it, you just accept that this is how the characters mm. in the story speak. I very much feel like that's how you wrote. And one thing that I would say is your humor was really on point. It's so subtle for most listeners. I would say that it, it mirrors British humor. It's dry. Uh, mm you don't even realize you just got punched in the face with a joke until a couple of like lines later. And then you're like, ah, okay. So those are the things I think I like about your book. And I apologize that I'm not going to be a little bit more like, surgical in my feedback because I value what you do. Uh, you're, you're a tremendous human being. In fact, uh, actually as much as anything, I really enjoy your Substack. by the way, if anybody is listening, doesn't know what Substack is definitely subscribe to uh shane substack your agriculture one i wish i had the name right in front of me is so it's um zero input agriculture at substack zero input agriculture at substack is just so phenomenal i read it and what you're doing out there and it honestly it does like it almost takes me back to the the like what i picture as the 1800s in the united states you know it's like what you're doing is so logical and yet it requires you not to have an irrigation you don't have a center pivot uh irrigation system out there you're figuring out what grows in my climate without me giving a shit and i love that Mm -hmm. hopefully i'm well i'm probably taking a similar approach to my writing career in a way yeah i'm 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 throwing a lot of different things out there and taking my time and waiting to see what takes off organically. Yeah, that's a perfect, uh, it's, it's almost like you're leading the podcast right now because it is a perfect <laughs> transition to talk about your autopsy, which I love that the document you sent me was called an autopsy um, in that it, it, I think it suggests that you feel like your novellas are dead 
and you're looking at the death of the novellas and saying what worked, <laughs> what didn't work, what can I do better next time? What mm -hmm. will I never do again? Um, and so what I'd like to invite you to do for the best structure of the conversation is talk me through front to back the autopsy. And as you get to points where I have questions about how you structured things, I'll go ahead and stop you. I'll interrupt and I'll just, we'll have a, a quick conversation. Does that sound like a, a plan? That sounds perfect. Yes. Yep. That works really well. So we'll, we'll I'll try and make it snappy. So when I went into this project, um, I had a few aims. Like, I'm like, what do I actually want to achieve here? Because I've never written long form fiction before. Um, I've done long form scientific writing, but that's different. But it made the scale of it not so scary. So I'm like, okay, I think I can handle this. Um, so I wanted to learn all the stages of writing to come up with a concept, do the outlines, the drafting and the editing. I wanted to learn all of the stages of production, um, doing my own covers, writing blurbs, formatting, uh, getting a website for uh, an author page and doing the self-publishing. And for the third point, I wanted to learn the basics of self-promotion. So making an email list, uh, appearing on podcasts like this one, uh, doing some social media, but I didn't want to do any paid advertising. Um, the advice I'm seeing is that you get higher return on investment when you have a decent back catalog. So I'm leaving that as something to do, to consider doing in the future and taking my time to get a few books out that I'm really proud of first. Um, but the most important aim of all was to do all of these things, get to the end of the process and still want to write another book. So there's no point doing everything perfectly if you burn out your motivation. And I tend to be very either obsessed with something or completely over it. And once I start to turn and my, my psychology starts to turn against being interested in something, um, I'm in the danger zone then. And I'm, I'm basically like, nope, just stop pushing or you're never going to want to do it ever again. So um, as far as that goes, I, I, I apologize. I don't remember the name of the beans, but there's a specific kind of beans that you've been growing recently. Remind me. Um, oh, the sword beans. Yeah. I thought they were like sod, sod beans or something like that, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So those those beans, I think, are, are kind of a... a an analogy or uh, a metaphor for what you're talking about in terms of you didn't want to keep growing sweet uh, or, or snap peas, right? You didn't want to keep growing mm -hmm. those. You want to grow these things that were just naturally really difficult and had a lot of predators and it kind of burned you out. So you're like, what can I put in the ground that is going to feel rewarding enough as it's growing that I want to cultivate it to a degree and I want to take the seeds and I want to make it better the next time around. So each season after itself, is is, is that an accurate kind of uh, comparison? Yes. To your writing yeah. Process? yeah. I, I had, I had very modest expectations for this first round of writing yeah. and the main aim was to get through the whole process and want to do it again and be in a position to do it better the second time round. Yes. Yeah. And so you you kind of have almost like taken the 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 harvest from her unbound helix, uh, and if I mispronounce that, I apologize. But and and the the, correct, yeah. the 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 novellas, and you want to you want to take those and sort of harvest the seeds from them and replant and figure out what can I do that I don't necessarily have to put in any more work, just put in the right kind of work. And they will uh, yield a better crop next season, yeah? Mm. Yes, because I, I do eventually want to have a modest passive income from 
my writing. But like I'm 46 now. If I get to 60 and I'm making, I don't know, $10,000 a year from my back catalog of books sustainably, that's where I'm aiming for. So I've got a a lot of time to build towards it. So one of the things I I, enjoy- Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I kind of figure that these really weird niche titles, they're less likely to blow up in the short term, but they're more likely to have enduring value because there's nothing else like it. Absolutely. Yes. You're absolutely right. I mean, in, in, in your position, you really, the burden is, is being discovered because you are doing mm-hmm. something that's very unique. I talk to people a lot who are coming into writing, um, writing a very popular genre. Like everybody's trying to do the Lord of the Rings again. Mm-hmm. And occasionally you see something that gets close enough. Like I, I really do believe that uh, George R. R. Martin redid the Lord of the Rings for, for modern readers. And that's why there's so much sex and violence and death and destruction. It's still the same story. You know, when you look at it, it's, it's exactly the same. <laughs> Um, it's kind of Lord of the Rings crossed with Days of Our Lives. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Fair enough. Nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Um, but and so so I think that when when you're doing something like you're doing, um, it is a matter of being discovered because roughly nobody's doing it, and so you're looking for Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of momentum mm. versus George R. R. Martin. Um, you I'd, I'd maybe point out too that Lord of the Rings, when it was first written, I mean, it got a little bit of critical response yeah. because he was friends with the, with the critics. Yeah. I mean, we still kind of yeah. do that today. Um, but it was such a weird story of its time. Like, was it a fairy tale for children? But it was like how many thousand pages long? Yeah. Like nobody knew quite what to do with it. And it wasn't yeah. until the 70s that the anti-war and the anti-nuclear movement Ooh. picked it up and popularized it that it really took off. That was like 20 years later. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, while we're talking about it, I actually, for anybody who hasn't read it, if you are in a closet somehow, somewhere, like hiding from like normal society, The Hobbit's actually a better book, by the way. Um, it's yeah, t- I would totally agree. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because I was like, <laughs> it's just a tighter story. It's more fun. It's silly. Uh, the language is better. He doesn't waste so much mm. time on world building. And, and in a really satisfying way, that actually makes a better story. So I guess, okay. There's so many directions I want to go. We have a good conversation. There's a lot of meat on the bone. I don't want to necessarily just charge forward. But in this case, go ahead and get back to your autopsy. And let's let's talk a little bit about what you did with your books um, and, and pick up where you left off. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we'll just quickly go over the writing process because I know some people find that interesting. So, I had this idea buzzing around in my head for years before I sat down and wrote it. And writing it just felt like the only way of getting it out of my head. And I actually wrote the 80,000 words and then 50,000 words of the story and had to throw it away because I tried to do it as a novel with just one point of view, like the four novellas was just compact together and the main character was too passive too unlikable they didn't know what was going on until like the last third of the story and it just didn't work and i was getting very close to giving up on the whole idea when i had i caught covid i'm pretty sure um because it was in the middle of all of that chaos and the fever dream that i had from covid actually helped me to reimagine the story as four novellas so it's a weird structure 
it's still the story of one person's life, but it's told from four minor characters' perspectives as that person passes through their life. So I, I don't think I've ever seen that particular structure before. You know, um, um, I, I, what, what I will what I will say is that there, there's a couple of books that I think of that kind of do a somewhat similar thing. Uh, Michael Shabon did something similar, but I, I'm struggling to remember the novel. Um, regardless, though, it, it's a really fun way to. Okay, so I guess what I, what I'm thinking about that particular thing is that if you were going to write a political thriller, that would be the most amazing way, and nobody's ever done it there before. So you're doing it. You're doing it in a cool genre. But if you ever want to write a political thriller, do the same thing, um, and then force yourself to put one of the perspectives from a person in the image of Donald Trump. Uh, and that would make for a fascinating read. Anyways, carry on. <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, I, I forced myself to do nothing but drafting. So I drafted the four novellas back to back with like a week in between. And it takes me about a month to write 40, to draft 40,000 words. And I really like to just only focus on that to get like psychic immersion while mm. I'm, I'm kind of in that headspace. And I ended up accidentally following um, Heinlein's rules for writing yeah. to, to basically just revise the previous day's work to kind of get you back in immersed. And if it's not good enough to throw it away and then rewrite that section, but to avoid having to do major structural edits. But yeah. basically, you want it to be at least 70% right before you sit down to do light editing. Um, as a result of that, when I went to edit book two, it was nowhere near good enough. So I completely rewrote that from scratch and it was better to spend the time doing that. And even book four, even though it was kind of right, but the, just the emotional intensity wasn't right, the interiority. So I scrapped the draft of that and rewrote 40,000 words. And it's funny, like a lot of people when they're starting writing think, oh, that's a tragedy. Like you wrote all of those words and had to throw it away. And I'm like, if you want to write, you have to expect to do a lot of writing and sometimes you're better off starting from scratch than, you know, trying to do it one sentence at a time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's just my approach. I know, I know more extensive rewriting works for other people, but I, if I don't have that kind of immersion, um, it's, it's really hard to inject it after the fact. I think, I think it's worth stopping for a second because you're, mm -hmm. you're one of just a few readers that I have. Um, ironically, I'm not actually big on having many hands in the pie. So uh, Heather, who I mentioned earlier, is one of my readers right now. Before her, I had a friend from grad school named JP, who was a reader for me. Uh, he and I have drifted apart. Um, sadly, I still love the guy. If he ever listens to this podcast again, I harbor no hard feelings. And hopefully we can work together again in the future. But um so Heather replaced JP, but other than that, it's my wife, it's Heather, and right now it's you, and you read my work. Mm. Uh, I had my agent, um, Annie, she read my work, and then, you know, you kind of replaced her, I guess, in a sense. I don't <laughs> want a ton of people reading my work, but something that you said early on really impacted me, and I, I wrestled with it in ways that you'll never know. When you said you felt like The Nine Lives of Marvin Long High was overworked, it just... It took me months to feel like, what the hell? Because I worked on that book so hard for so long to get a traditional publishing deal. Mm. I go back and I look at it and I still, I do love the book. I really do. I don't, it, 
I'm happy with it. I'm not going to make any substantial changes to it, but uh, Eight Ball Magic of Susie Q is a better book. My wife agrees. Mm. Everybody Mm. who's read it agrees that it's a better book. So you got to get through book one to get to book two and everything in book one is important for book two, but it's almost as if like too much work on a book hurts it. And I think intuitively you understand that, but at the same time, you're the kind of guy who wants to read a book that's not perfect. So I think this is a decent time to stop and talk about that a little bit. Your books yeah, are, yeah. Would, would you say that your your novellas are as perfect as you could get them? Or did you intentionally leave space because that's the reader that you are? Can, can you talk about that a little, so, if I'm making sense? Yeah. So on this issue, the analogy I use is plastic surgery. Okay. So if you get the right surgeon and you do just a little bit of work, you can transform someone from like ordinary to to beautiful. If it's the wrong surgeon, they can stuff it up on the first try. And like, it's, you know, you might never recover from that. Um, (laughs) But even the best surgeon, if they keep tweaking things, eventually the look starts falling apart. And we've all seen celebrities who get addicted to plastic surgery and it, it just is a horror show. And I think the same applies to writing. So you have to be very careful about the people you take advice from. Um, it's interesting. When I first started this project, I sent my work out to like dozens and dozens of other people, you know, just preliminary chapters, just getting as much feedback as I possibly could. And through that process, I've picked out like just a handful of reliable and quality readers who who give me information that actually helps me do a better job to make the the small changes that need to be done. And yeah, I, I, I stand, even though it caused you a lot of turmoil, I, I stand by my observation that the first book for you was overworked. Too, too many fingers in the pie. Yeah. Um, it's still a great book. I still thoroughly enjoyed it, but it's really wonderful seeing you develop more confidence in your own judgment. And I think all writers have to go through that. There's a, yeah. there's a conversation that narrows down as you become more confident in what you're doing. Um, with my books, I was lucky the first book is kind of YA because the character is a bit young and naive. So, I, I can kind of chalk it up to a stylistic choice that maybe it's a little bit more childish in the way it presents things. Um, the second book uh, is probably the most confronting and dark one in the series. And from people who've read all the way through, they say book three and four are the best in the series. And I'm happy with that because it shows that I'm improving and the return on investment of going back to tweak book one and two, I don't think it's, it's high enough to justify it and better off moving on to the next project. I love, I love that point. Um, I don't, I don't think that you were any part of this conversation because I think I had it mostly on, on uh, Instagram, but I asked about uh, the Nine Lives of Marv DeLonghi specifically, uh, Lyle eats a ton. And I, that was always a really intentional thing on my part, but um, readers, at least five, have mentioned either in a public review or privately, it was distracting for them and they didn't understand. And I was meant to be humorous and sort of a nod to the magic of the book. Um, but there's this mm. point, I think, where if you get enough comments, is it ever worth going back and saying, hey, this is a great book. And if I took this feedback into uh, account, I can maybe make it better for more people. So it sounds to me like based on your comment that you're you're closing the door. Is there ever a time when you think about maybe a second edition of some sort or anything? 
It's tricky with the series because it all flows forwards. So when when you move one part early on, you I don't know maybe just stylistic stuff. Um, it, it, getting getting back to that idea of um of Lyle eating yeah. being distracting. I I thought about this more afterwards, and I think it was a case of ambiguity. So, you know the phrase, hang a lantern on it to, like, make it obvious that it's deliberate? I actually feel like you probably needed to do just one thing that made it obvious that it was deliberate, that Lyle's eating was inexplicable. Um, It was kind of just on the borderline. Heather screaming out loud, thank you, thank you, thank you. She literally used the exact same phrase, hang a lantern on it, literally. Yeah. Yes. Hang a lantern on it. And so I did actually, if you, if you go back and read the book now, I did do an edit to the book where there's one comment from Luke where she says, I don't even understand where he's getting all that food from. And, and literally like hanging that lantern on it tells everybody like, okay, we know. Um, But brilliant. Thank you for saying that. That's um, Mm. I can even cut this out of the podcast and still just be personally. (laughs) (laughs) The, The other suggestion I would maybe do would be to ramp it up gradually in the first couple of chapters that it starts as something that's just ordinary and it it reaches the point that you hang a lantern on it yeah um so that there's like there's a dynamic in the the salience of it to the reader well fine Mm. but yeah anyway um, i'm gonna say this is your podcast so let's do get back we talked about Well, and, and it's true though, but we talked about Heinlein, we talked about 160,000 words. Um, mm. So it's basically like two n- novels worth is the the space of your four novellas. Um, yeah. And I think that basically we had gotten to the point where you talked about sort of like the drafting process. So I think, I think. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I ended up spending a year and a half drafting, but about half of that was on the original drafts that I threw away completely. Okay. Um, editing, I, I like changed mental gears and said, okay, now I'm just going to focus on getting good at editing. And I spent six months on that. Mm-hmm. And that was really good because I, I think it was a, a clever choice doing multiple novellas because each one was a small kind of mini project. So drafting it took a month, editing it took a week at a time. And I got to move from book to book. Every time I got a bit burnt out on one, I could move on to another one with relatively fresh eyes. So I think that kind of structure made things a little bit easier. Um, And I I was then working on things like covers in between rounds of editing and drafting. So I could come back to them with fresh eyes as well. Um, And after I edited to the point where I'm like, okay, I think I've done all I can. Um, I paid a professional proofreader to do book one because I'm doing this on a very limited budget. Yep. And I took the patterns of corrections that they'd made from book one and I applied them to the other books myself to save several hundred dollars. And, no, and yeah, they, they commented that it was, it was a very clean draft already. When you talk about patterns, can you, can you um, sort of like go into a little bit more depth about what you mean when you say patterns? Uh, it was mostly some punctuation issues. So like dashes and maybe commas okay. was, was a common thing where I'm like, I, I'm part of the generation that went through school without learning formal grammar. Um, oh. our, our, our education system at that time decided, you know, kids will just pick it up spontaneously. Uh, so that's been, that's been interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of people in my generation in Australia, the first time they learn formal grammar is when they study a second language where they're oh, like, oh, there's all of these like patterns and rules. And well, I mean, English is a bit of a, a dog's breakfast. Anyway, um, so <laughs> I pub I, I self-published those um ebooks a week 
two weeks apart to see if I could get like a bit of momentum. Yeah. And the the three other novellas, um, early readers sent me like a dozen typos on each one. And because it's an ebook, it's not a big deal to like re-upload the manuscript with a couple of corrections. Yeah. So I, I think that was a reasonable judgment to, to save a little bit of money there. I, I honestly believe the more I've thought about it, that for self-published authors, it's a great idea to not worry about your street team and your, you know, like pre-orders and all that kind of stuff. Quietly publish your book and start to let people know it's out there. Let a couple of sales accumulate. Let a couple of uh, like, um, what are they called? Reviews where they're they're authentic reviews. I can't think of the stupid word right mm. now. Basically, mm. let let some authentic reviews gather up from people who are not going to be super hard on you, but maybe privately say like, "Hey, by the way, you had typos here. Um, I mm. like the way that you did it because." I think putting so much pressure on that like day one really hurts a lot of people. Mm. And I think it, it ignores the reality of what is actually happening for most self-published authors, which is the, the the momentum that you are banking on with with your novellas. So I think that you accidentally did something really smart, or probably not accidentally. If you're sending me a three-page autopsy, you were very intentional <laughs> about what you were doing. But um, so just really, I, I, I wonder if that pressure on the big release and everything happening simultaneously is a hangover from when the Amazon algorithm could be gamed yes. by like ticking all yes. the right boxes. I don't think that world exists anymore, but the advice is still out there to like make everything perfect in the first week and it'll it'll take off. I, I don't think that happens anymore. And I think that's probably for the better. Like whenever right. you have a system of rules, there's going to be people who try and game it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the best books end up rising to the top of the heap in, no, in the long run. I agree with you. And I do want to pause there because I think this is a incredibly important part of the conversation. You, I, I'm, I'm just going to say to you, you are trying to game the process. I am trying to game <laughs> the process. We're trying yeah. to figure out how we can take what we've done and apply it to a system that doesn't naturally want to favor us. Um, mm. Anytime that you are a self-published author, you're trying to figure out where's a crack in the armor right mm. now, because mm -hmm. somebody out there is trying to tell you that Farrar, Strauss and Giraud, Harper Collins, Penguin, Random House, those are the official taste makers. And if you can't do what they deem worthy you're not worth our time. You're saying, mm. um, even though Margaret Atwood came to us through the big five, uh, I write fiction just as good as anything that Margaret did. And I have something really important to say. It's not mm. saying that Margaret's not great. It's saying I actually have something to say. So you're mm. looking for the openings in the system that you can pass through to get your books to a large portion of people. And I think that that's a really important thing. Would you agree with me that that you are, I mean, the, 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 the term gaming the system hurts, but ultimately you are trying to do that, right? Yeah. 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 And the system, it, it's a moving target. Yeah. So advice that worked even a year ago often will fall flat because, yeah. and, and even people who get success will suddenly have the rug pulled out from underneath them if they're relying on Amazon to do the hard work for them, yes. to, to open doors for them. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so getting on to maybe the production side yeah. of things. 
Um, so I made my own covers. Uh, I spoke about this in more detail on the Words and Pictures podcast with um, DJ mm-hmm. Bowman Smith. Yes. I, I love her. She's wonderful. Um, but, yeah, I ended up making my own covers in Adobe Illustrator in a very abstract kind of uh, pattern. Uh, I didn't want to go to a professional cover designer because I couldn't just say, oh, this is a sword and fantasy thing. Just put a dragon and a sword on the front. It's a a weird orphan genre. There's no visual conventions about what it should look like. And I didn't know what I wanted going in. So I couldn't tell them what I wanted. So it would have been a very drawn out and risky process. I took that risk on myself. And over 12 months, I went through repeated rounds of trying to put covers together Um, One thing I really, really love about cover design, if you go to social media and put two versions of a cover up, you will get so many responses and people just instantly love that. Which of these images looks more appealing? Um, So I I would highly recommend tapping into that. Um, If you do that with blurbs, people are much more reluctant to read even a few hundred words, but you still get useful feedback. Um, And yeah, it took me, I think- up to 30 versions of like refining covers and wow. just like a, a draft okay. being able to work on it for a while, then put it aside for a couple of months and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes makes a huge difference. You can do a lot of the work yourself if you take the time to put it aside and then look at it again and repeat that process. I just really, really love this, this part of it. For one, um, I use what I've started to do is, and everybody who listens to podcast knows I'm part of a program called author marketing mastery through optimization, uh, or Mm -hmm. EMO. And, uh, Steve talks a lot about AB testing. He talks a lot about, uh, testing your audience, figuring out what people like. And, um, so you'll, you'll take 10 taglines and you'll run them as just click ads on Facebook, which is really cheap. So you can get 400 impressions on each of those quite quickly and figure out what are people most interested in. You take your winning tagline and then you take 10 images with your winning tagline and see what do people like most paired with that tagline. And you can figure out a couple of images that they like and you can start to build out this ad that should be super effective based on what people are interested in. Um, What I've started to do, and it sounds like what you're doing, but for free in a sense, is going to your, your following on Twitter and saying, hey, what do you like? And that allows Mm. you to know what people are interested in, what visually catches them. And one of the things that I want to say to you is very, very rare occasions, a uh, homemade hover design passes the snuff test. Your covers are a work of art. I absolutely adore your book covers. Well, thank I, you. <laughs> I, there's no chance that I would have ever said that they were homemade because they're so intentional. They look like cellular biological things. Um, mm. And if you don't. Well, I, that was the only visual language. Like I'm marketing my books yeah. towards biology nerds. If you like love biology, you have to say that instantly on the cover. So it's like. Yeah. I thought about like most people have like high school level biology would be the biggest yep. demographic. So yep. I've thought about high school textbook, <laughs> biology textbook, visual yep. language. Yep. How can I turn that into an intriguing, stunning cover? Like you, you almost see organelles and, uh, and, mm. and all that kind of stuff in, in, in the covers themselves. But when you look mm. closer, they also are kind of signaling you to the, the elements of the book themselves. And so I just think you, really hit on something great with those covers. One thing I was going to ask you, because this will be applicable to my listeners, uh, 
is there any difference between using Adobe and Canva, for example? Because I can get a one-year subscription to Canva for under $200 US. Mm. Um, is Adobe significantly better or is it just what you had and were familiar with? Um, so I had used Adobe Illustrator when I was a, a research scientist for making like diagrams and figures for so papers. Yeah, so I already had a bit of a, a head start on it. Um, that was one of the reasons I chose to go down that route. The other one was when you like open up Amazon and look at all the covers, there's so much Photoshop and even good Photoshop still looks like Photoshop. Um, I think we're going to have a similar issue with like AI generated uh, imagery in the future as well. It's going to be a sameness to it. And I was also thinking about what translates well into a small thumbnail. And the skills that I had in Adobe Illustrator were good for making high precision, um, abstract, like, you know, very, very bold, um, two-dimensional kind of images rather than all of that, like rendering and blending and all of those kind of effects. So, yeah, I basically just started from the skills that I had. And uh, with Adobe Illustrator, it does a lot of really fine detail. Like you can get down to like individual pixels and, and manipulate them to it. um to end up with a really polished finish. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure Canva is quite as good at doing that no, really fine no level chance. detail. There's no chance. When you talk about it at that level, Canva just can't do it. Um what I what I do love about Canva for anybody who's thinking about what they what tools they want and what tools they have access to is if you spend the under two hundred dollars for Canva um, you can do really simple things like background remover. Uh, you can really control your um, layers. So you can figure out what's layered on top and what's underneath it. So you can kind of overlap things and underlap. I don't know if that's even a word. Um, and, and so there's it a lot now. of <laughs> what I use. Uh, my wife, who has a degree in, in graphic design, designed all of my covers using Canva. So it mm. does work. Um, but the other thing that we have used and we're going to be using for books four through nine is uh, open, well, open AI and, and um, oh, good grief. Help me out here. What's it called? Uh, Discord. Uh, Mid Journey. Mid Journey. Yeah. So we're using Mid Journey. And I don't know, have you used that at all? What are your thoughts, feelings? Because we do have to I, talk about AI here. You're, 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 yeah. I haven't played with it much. I know that um, the Adobe suite is integrating um, AI image generation Ooh. in it. Wow. And okay. uh, it's called, oh, what's the name of the tool? I don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head because I haven't played with it yet. But um, the advantage of that is that all of the training material for it is paid for. So it's oh, wow. one. it's probably one way that you can avoid potential issues in the future with, you know, lawsuits underway for the gotcha. uh, some of some of the AI image generation systems that their their training sets might be of uncertain provenance. I am I'm interested and we're not going to talk about it here, but I am interested a little bit to see how the the lawsuits go because I think there's a part of me when I see Sarah Silverman suing uh over it that I just kind of think, hey, you're a human being. Just go for it, because I think that large language models have issues like you talked about just a moment ago. Um, it's almost recognizable when you're working with MidJourney, uh, the kind of images that generates. You have to be mm. extremely smart to escape the the pitfalls of MidJourney. Some people do. Mm. I hope that I do because I use it and I love it. But it creates a certain kind of image. And mm. um, I think that Sarah Silverman maybe is not 
forward thinking enough to understand that that she is one of the smartest, most brilliant comedians, and she can always outrun a large language model because all it does is look at the past. It's it's already mm-hmm. a year behind. Um, we don't need to necessarily dialogue about that, but it is interesting. And, mm-hmm. and I know from speaking with you that you've used some of these things to help you out. Uh, you animated your designs. You've done some just really cool. Oh, stuff. I did that by hand. I did that by hand. No, I know you did. In, I, I, in I, Adobe I, Illustrator, I, yeah. yeah. Um, but the but the AI narration I used. Yes. Okay. So mm. well, I guess I wasn't I wasn't trying to 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 like suggest that you use that to animate, but I was just saying like mm. you in my conversations with you offline, where we're not on a podcast, I have already gathered you're not actually afraid of large language models. You're seeing them as a version of of biological science fiction. You can't get away. Uh, yeah, I, I think. We'll talk about it at the end of the um the episode because I've got okay. a project that I right. want to do with um with with GPT, which yeah. so, uh, someone out there might be able to contribute to. Um, right. But anyway, so um I formatted in Atticus. It's the cheaper option. <laughs> um, the table of contents is ugly, but otherwise it saved me a lot of time and stress. I think in the future yeah. I'm probably going to figure out how to format in Word because it gives you more control, even though it breaks occasionally. Yes. Um, and then I self-published in Amazon and I rolled the series out two weeks apart, yep. which I think my current understanding is that the first two weeks that a, a debut comes out, Amazon gives it a little bit of extra promotion. So yep. I was just playing with the system to see if I could chain that interest. Yeah. It didn't work out. You'll see in the end when I get to the sales. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm actually, and- so, by the way, and we can cut this out. I'm actually, I found your outline. So since we're not using video, I'm actually like, walking along the outline with you right now, but I do, I kind of, I'm curious about um, the, 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 the AI piece before we move too much further on. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, do just real quickly. And then we'll get to how you're using it, but respond. Like, what is your feeling about AI? Is it, is it a danger to um, the screen actors guild, the writers? It, it, what am I missing? Because my sense is anybody who's mad at it is just scared about, like, um, I yeah. I think it's it, the danger is that we go through what happened with industrialization for like all of the other productive parts of the economy. So, yeah. you know, before there were factories churning out sneakers, you would have individual cobblers making shoes by hand right. and tailoring them for the yeah. person's feet that they yeah. were making them for, making shoes that were designed to last a very long time, to be repairable. Absolutely. Like it had all of these advantages, but the cost of one pair of shoes was so high that there were, you know, children running around barefoot for the first 10 years of their lives because yeah. no one could afford shoes for them. Um and then you flip to the sneaker model where they're designed to fall apart after six weeks, they, they're six months. They're not particularly good for your shoes. They're not good for the environment. So, but they're just so cheap that they flood the market and make it almost impossible to be a cobbler in the modern age. And yeah, I, I can see the risk that the same thing is going to happen with creative industries. And to be fair, the majority of people who write novels and paint paintings are doing it at a net economic loss. Like it's a form of consumption and the production itself is a form of entertainment for the average author or painter or photographer. Like we've already reached that stage. So if large language models come along and they they drive the people out of the market who are writing relatively low quality fiction and 
that weren't making money from it anyway, I think that might actually be a net positive if they go off and do other things with their lives. Um, maybe that's a really kind of callous way of looking at it. But if if they're already struggling to be a writer and not enjoying it that much and it's not that rewarding, then either they're doing it just because they love it and they're going to do it with LLMs and millions of extra titles on Amazon anyway, yeah. um, or they're going to go and do something more productive. Um, for, for writers who are making a career, we were already having the mid-list disappear because of the merging of the big houses, the publishing houses. Um, Self-publishing promised to rebalance that. I'm not sure how much it has actually delivered on that promise. I still think it's a bit of a winner-takes-all networked system. Like, if you attract eyeballs, it attracts more eyeballs, and that propagates in a way that's, you know, it's just the nature of the internet. It's It's this global thing where things go viral. Um, and if you can't go viral, then yeah, do you even exist? So um, one of the things that, that I said recently, and I don't remember where I said it, I, I host a podcast, I appear on podcasts, uh, um, but the idea of being able to publish a book that's so successful that, uh, and by the way, I, I always mention FSG for our Strauss and Giro because that is the publisher for the longest time that I wanted to be uh, an author for. I just thought like FSG is is my world. That's where I want to go. Um, but I want to be so successful as a self-published author that FSG comes and offers me a book deal. And I say, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I just can't afford to take that kind of uh, a cut in distribution. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that for me is the dream. If, if I can, mm, me too, me too. Enough, right. To just like get my book out to the world and to readers at such a level that it doesn't make sense. And that actually is where you start to be game of Thrones, uh, where, where you, you flip the system on its head and you start to be mm. very, very diligent about getting readers and maybe possibly upset the system. I think that there are mm. some published authors out there who have the ability. If Stephen King had the the cojones, um, if uh, J.K. Rowling understood that her readers were out there right now, um, mm. I don't say cojones because I really admire her feminism. Uh, mm. You know, if they had the ability to just say, sorry, I can do this better than you can by far because you're still relying on really old world marketing, um, mm. You know, the amazing things would happen because those are two very capable authors among so, so many. So that's what I hope happens. I I do kind of like that we're living in a kind of Wild West time in history. Yeah. That there's all of these opportunities just like falling out of the sky, but you have to be prepared to take a chance on different things and be be in the right place at the right time. Like a lot of it's timing. Um, I I will point out too that with the, the potential rise of LLMs, I think writers who rely on voice alone, which is kind of like a lot of literary fiction, like it's not necessarily the plot or the ideas, it's just the feeling that the writing gives you. I think they're probably in danger of being imitated by a computer that can, you know, churn out as much as people want. Um, I also think that writers who are writing formulaic, like romances and mysteries that just kind of follow the same pattern with slightly different coat of paint, they're probably in more danger. But if you're writing really weird science fiction that is built on fresh ideas, that's something that the AI won't be able to do on its own, um, at least for the foreseeable future. By far the most valuable thing that's been said in the podcast. Uh, I, I, I want people to just pause and think about that for a second. 
if you're innovative and you're trying to do something that no one's done before, AI's got mm. nothing on you. If you're doing something mm. that somebody else has done before, look out because it's coming for you. Um, but I mean, that's the most fun part of the writing process. Uh, like yeah. finding full stops that you missed is traditionally part of the writing process. That's pretty much been automated now. And yeah. nobody's crying because they were really good at finding missing full stops and their job's gone. Um, we just move on. And, you know, there's, yeah. there's always some part of the process left for humans. I'm, I'm hopeful. I know um, that. I know that to be the truth. Let's let's mm-hmm. do touch on. So uh, you you've been on Twitter and you said you hate it. Uh, Facebook, you feel like is dead, which I disagree with. Reddit dying. I don't know for sure. Substack yeah. and crickets. Uh, yeah, that's my, that's, that's my author Substack. I made a separate Haldane B. Doyle page. I've put a couple of posts up about my writing process and designing covers, which, you know, people of this podcast might find interesting. I don't think I've been active enough there to really push it. And I'm also a bit worried too. Maybe, maybe this is touching a nerve, but, but actually you said this part of me has realized that the worst person to novel, to market a novel to is another author. Because, yeah. like, they already have so much reading and writing to do that the chance of them taking time to even read a novella, like, you, you have to be grateful for that when you get it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, a substack which is mostly about the writing process is probably going to be primarily most interesting to people who are also writers who are the least likely people to actually buy my book. Yes. But, I mean, this is part of the problem of my orphan genre, like... I can't just like put a spaceship on the front of my cover and expect Star Trek fans to pick it up. It's it no. kind of doesn't know where if, if Star to Trek picks it up, they might be a little bit upset because it's not quite right for them. I mean, it's in the neighborhood, but it's not quite mm. right. I, I don't. Mm. Okay, well, actually, let's talk about that. I want to put a pin in that because <laughs> you just you use the short you use the shortcut to say Star Trek Star Trek fans, and I thought if I'm specifically thinking about marketing, Star Trek's not actually where I would go, but. Um, mm. And then I, I I didn't think about my words. So apologies there, because I think that oh, that's Star Trek fans will love your books. I'm saying if mm. that's how you market it, you're not yeah. going to find a ton of success because it's not a Star yeah, Trek. They won't recognize it as something that they will enjoy when they give it a try. That's exactly right. Yep. Mm. Um, um, I, I, made, I made an email list. It's at uh, 42 people. So not, not that impressive. I thought about doing email list swaps. But I'm in such a weird orphan subgenre at this stage that I don't quite know what other authors I could connect to. I'm kind of I've, I've walled myself off here, so that that's kind you, of a. Do you have BookFunnel? Uh, I now what did I? I think I use it for my um my ARCs. Yeah, yeah, but I haven't tapped into the email list swaps yet. So maybe I should just bite the bullet there and do that. Author author swaps are really nice. I just concluded one with Jade. Uh, I'm not I'm not looking at it, but um, Jade Madden. There it is. So I, I just concluded an author swap with Jade Madden on my side, um, and my email list gave her 24 new readers. Uh, she's doing a free book. I'm doing a free book. Hers hasn't gone yet, so I don't know what it's going to give me. But each time that I do an author swap on BookFunnel, I gain somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 50 new readers. Um, I asked Jade as I was kind of concluding her piece of it, because I went first, like, hey, do you actually get book buyers out of this? And she said to me, um, it takes a while, basically is what she said. She said, like, 
every new subscriber is probably three or four months away from considering buying from me. And I thought that that was kind of an important takeaway is that if you do the book funnel author swaps, just understand like your first few times, you're going to get a lot of people unsubscribing from your list. They grabbed Mm -hmm. your free book and now they're going to get your emails and decide like, is it actually worth reading this? Uh, And then you're going to give them an offer to buy a book and you're going to lose a lot of people right there because they're going to be like, wait, they're trying to sell me something. The people who have have high value. Yeah. That's one advantage I have with the structure of the novella series. It's very easy to give that first novella away. Mm -hmm. Like basically anyone who blinks at me, I'm like throwing it at them because it's basically a loss. It's a, it's a reader magnet. It's a loss later. And I would love, I would love for you to try that and to have you on a third time to talk about how that piece of it went, because I think that your journey is one of the most exciting things that I've been a part of. Um, We, we, want to keep going through this autopsy but one thing for anybody who's listening this far into the podcast shane is the one who introduced me to uh michael and um why is my brain not working right now robin and robin and um they are the ogs for direct fulfillment so basically selling the books from their own house if it's paperback or using something like book funnel to fulfill an ebook or an audiobook. Uh, mm-hmm. They keep so much of their money per each copy that they sell that they don't have to sell a ton. But what ends up happening mm-hmm. is you build a larger list is that you do actually sell hundred thousand books and you keep 90% of the hundred thousand books you sell. And suddenly you can do some really cool things. You're the one who introduced me to direct sales. And so it was directly from there that I got into ammo and my podcast is now TRBM ammo every Wednesday. Mm. Um, so you're responsible for that. <laughs> I, I will bring up a point with that. Um, they use Patreon, I think. They use Kickstarter a lot. Yep. And I remember in their interviews, they said, they only recommend doing Kickstarters when you have a decent yep. back catalog right. and enough of a following and right. you charge straight into doing it and fell on your face. And oh, I, I remember when you reported that, I'm like, maybe it was just, again, timing. Like it's not just the tool, it's when you choose to use it. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm maybe I'm maybe I have the opposite problem that I'm delaying doing things to like put it off into the future so I don't have to think about it today. Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe we can balance each other out in in our friendship. Yes, we should. <laughs> I, I, I agree. So I am I'm a hard charging guy. The 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 guy who makes the the music for my podcast right now, Christopher Talon, told me the other day. He's well, actually, it's months ago now, but he's like, "You're gonna burn out, buddy." And I'm I'm like, "No, there's no chance of me burning out. I'm not working hard enough yet." But uh, I, I agree with you that I I failed so miserably on Kickstarter. Because you have to actually have a network to sell to, to start out with. There were things I learned about Kickstarter I would have never understood when I went into it, which is if you don't actually hit your goal within the first 48 hours, just kiss your campaign goodbye. I didn't know that. And I worked so, so hard to try to make a successful thing. But what I'm grateful for is that at that point, I was dedicated to this podcast and to the nonfiction book I had written. When the reality is, is that I got into this because of my novels. Fiction for me is what matters. Fiction for you, I think, is really dear. Um, So I think this is a a good spot at least to do a plug for like, why write fiction when this real world that you're living in right now is is like going to hell in a handbasket? (laughs) 
<laughs> um, so, again, like when a catastrophe hits a society, they often look around for tools, for ways of looking at the world that are already like there. Um, a really good example of this is Lord of the Rings, that when the anti-nuclear protests took off in the 70s, they looked around for a cultural message that kind of embodied what they were feeling about the state of the world around them and the crisis, crisis they were facing. And the Lord of the Rings became a kind of anthem, a kind of emblem about that fight against um, totalitarian disaster and tyranny. And I hope... My hope is that my fiction will kind of, you know, float around in the margins, it being weird and no one knowing quite what to do with it until it's something that people need as a different way of looking far enough into the future, a realistic, totally plausible, non-magical future. Like we don't need any warp drives or yeah. unobtainium um, or vibranium to make this this vision work. Um, we just need to change the way we see ourselves and each other in the planet. Um, so I'm hopeful that that's the role that my fiction will, particularly our vitreous womb, will serve in the future, that it will provide a third option to Star Trek and Mad Max. Yeah, there's something, uh, there is something amazing about Star Trek. Well, well, you've mentioned it, that, um, that, that there's a future where we don't spend money and where food can just be ordered out of like a, a, a holographic, you know, request <laughs> system. Um, it's, it's it's suburbia in space, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm <laughs> happy about that. If we can achieve that, where anybody could do those kind of things, I think you you solve a lot of problems. I like I like the the ambition of the idea as much as anything else. Plus, Patrick Stewart is just a, a vision. Um, I'm mm -hmm. I'm deeply in love with him as a person. <laughs> I suspect that he's every bit as as wonderful in real life as he is mm. for the roles that he picks. Um, so. The, I, I guess I want to land this conversation. I, I am going mm -hmm. to kind of shortcut some of your autopsy with letting the oh, okay, yes. know that uh, you can you can read the entire thing in full on the show notes, especially if you're in my sub stack. It's well ordered for you already. Uh, come and read it because there's stuff that we had to skip over for the sake of time. Um, but I, I want you to talk a little bit about money because it's the one thing in this podcast that it's really tough to get people to discuss. Um, yes. You already sent me your your dollars and cents. Now, I guess we could do a conversion rate versus the, like Australian money and, and American money. But just talk oh, just, about yeah, about just, just Just assume that they're, they're Australian play dollars compared to American dollars. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'll just I'll quickly run through the costs. And I've ordered yeah. this from the cheapest to the most expensive. My budget was $2,000 for the whole project, which I think is pretty cheap. It, well, if there's no paid advertising, then that's probably realistic for for a self-publishing job on this scale. Um, I used BookFunnel for my ARC distribution uh, for $29. I could have done without that because it was fairly small scale, but I think there's other functionality in that website that I have to tap into, like email swaps and uh, direct fulfillment. Um, I got into a book, Barbarian Promotion, which sends out uh, emails of self-published books to, I think it's like 30,000 sci-fi fantasy fans. Um, that cost me $63. Uh, it was a net negative. I got a spike of like 20 extra sales, but it had to be reduced to 99 cents. So I made practically nothing off it. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't that expensive. It was kind of an interesting experiment. Um, I paid for copyright in the US, which is optional for $124. It might be useful in the long run. I could have maybe skipped that if I really wanted to. 
Uh, I got my author website uh, made by a friend, but I had to pay $138 for hosting fees. Um, I was really lucky to have them do that for free. I could have used a drag and drop alternative, but it probably would have cost a bit more. I paid for a bundle of 10 ISBNs, which was essential if you don't want to be tied to Amazon forever. Um, and I've used six of those because there were the four ebook novellas. I bundled the four ebooks into one bigger, bigger ebook novella, uh, novel. And I also put a paperback version out. So each of those had separate ISBNs. And I used um, 11 labs to do AI narration. And I actually created an AI audiobook of the whole first novella. And I put it on YouTube for free for a while just to see if I could get any interest in it. A one hour commitment per chunk was, was a bit much. I think it's like three hours all up, but it was a really valuable tool to learn to use. And I think I'm going to be using that again in the future. Um, until I hit 11 labs, I didn't think AI narration would be good enough for public consumption, but I think it's it's crossed that threshold now. So I actually quite like that. Um, I paid $216 for proofreading of one of the novellas. That was definitely worthwhile. Um, maybe like both for the errors that they found, but also to give me reassurance that my other drafts were close enough to be publishable, that there, there weren't, you never really know, like you have to question whether you're seeing completely missing things that are, yeah. you know, totally unacceptable but I, I i think i'm i've got enough of an experience doing that kind of work through my professional background that that i managed to pull that off reasonably well um atticus was 220 dollars to do the formatting i think it saved me a lot of time and hassle but in the long run i'm keen to learn how to do my formatting in word because i just i'm a, i like detail i like being able to put something exactly where i want it to go and yeah. word gives you a bit more functionality there um, one thing that was a big waste of money, I paid for um, Publisher Rocket and Fiverr um, to do my um, keyword optimization for Amazon. If I was chasing a search engine optimization niche, then that would probably be really important. But because it's such a weird orphan subgenre, I don't think it really made any difference. Um, no. And the biggest expense was Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator. Um, over the year, I had like a month at a time and I managed to design five cover images. I got a lot of promotional material and website imagery as well. Um, it, learning to do your own graphic design isn't just for the covers. There's all of this other like peripheral visual language that you get to like reuse the assets for. So that was definitely worth the time. And I feel more confident now doing my own illustrator, my own covers in the future. So yeah, all of that was $1,680. So a bit under budget of $2,000. And as a result, um, since April, I've sold 77 ebooks on Amazon, one ebook on Kobo, and one paperback. And I'm selling the novellas, the ebook novellas at $2.99, the whole series for $7.99, and $19.99 is the paperback price. Um, mm -hmm. I was on Kindle Unlimited for the first few months, a thousand page reads, nothing really. And all of that, I think I've made like $180 in estimated royalties. So what's that? 10 to 1 negative so return on investment. You just said you made $180. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just, want, I just wanted to make sure of that. I mean, like, yeah, um, yeah th th this is the intersection for, for, for people who are listening. If you were direct fulfilling, you would have close to broken even. Um, just because, mm -hmm. like, for three bucks, you would make uh, $297 is, is what you would make. So, It'd be it'd be more viable, but you also would have slight 
uh, costs and things like Shopify or BookFunnel mm-hmm. if, if you know you didn't include those things in. But that, what I want to say to you first and foremost is um, thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing the numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. Shame on Amazon for keeping that much of the money to themselves. And uh, like, wow, your books are worth way more than that. So the story mm-hmm. of these novellas and the, the, the full box set is not over yet because um, mm. th- th- they're they're really good books. I look forward to reading the, the rest. Like I said, uh, shame on me for not reading the rest of them because <laughs> um, you're a great, great writer. The time Ooh. the time will come. And I, I don't feel like, see, here's the thing. I, I'm calling this an autopsy, probably a bit tongue in cheek. Yes, of course. This isn't the end of the project. I, mm. I suspect the, the return on investment with all of this is somewhere off in the future. And yeah. that writing more books at this stage is probably the most valuable thing I can do yeah. to build up a critical mass that starts bringing eyeballs towards me. I think so too. Um, mm-hmm. I want I want to finish off with two things. So the, the first one is actually the thing I've been thinking of most recently is, is there a way to get out of the uh, mass production model for authors? Because- I really do admire Stephen King and he writes uh, about one book every 16 months, let's say. So some years he'll come out with two, a lot of years he'll come out with one. I think a book a year seems really reasonable if you have a good team with you of editors, proofreaders, ideas, that kind of thing. Makes sense to me. Um, Forced to do Jonathan Yanez, who was a recent podcast uh, guest of mine, where you write a book a month for a period of time seems like exploitation uh it, it should not be a viable model if that's how you want to go and you can make money doing it congrats to you but ultimately i want for you shane and i want for me to be able to put out somewhere in the neighborhood of a book every 16 months um mm-hmm. let's, let's cap it at a hundred thousand words every 16 months and say mm-hmm. that if we do that then we deserve i think to make a, a, a fair wage to be able to support mm. a family, just like anybody who's working for a company. Um, and I, I'm, I'm deeply impressed by the work that you're doing because you. you have people relying on you. I'm very blessed that I retired very early. Yeah. I have a partner who goes out and works because they get bored when they stay at home yeah. and that pays the bills. So I'm not under that kind of immediate pressure to, yeah. to hit, it, hit it the big time. Um, but that also means that I've got very little cash to throw at problems. Yeah. Um, I, I really love the old adage, um, fast, cheap, good. You can only pick two. And that often applies to when you're building a house. So, like, you can do it really cheap and it can be good, but it's going to take a lot of your time. Yeah. And you can make it good and do it really quickly, but you're going to have to throw a lot of money at the problem. Like, that's the usual trade-off. And, yeah, um, yeah I'm definitely in the slow, cheap good <laughs> approach to building a writing career yeah uh we, we need to talk about hay bale houses at some point because that's my dream today, <laughs> my own hands to build a hay bale house i'm so enamored mm-hmm. by them this has been a phenomenal conversation thank you for giving me more than the the slotted time and uh i look forward to sharing this with with the listeners just just quickly before we wrap off can i talk about this gpt experiment that i'm yeah. hoping to run in the future because i would love to get the right person involved in this. So I'm not, I have no expertise in training large language models, but 
I've been looking at these things thinking, thinking, okay, so the big threat is there's going to be a flood of AI generated novels appearing on Amazon. But it got me thinking, could it also be used to filter that content and give personalized recommendations based on your own reading tastes? So at the moment, we have to rely on like star ratings and reviews, and it's a really clunky mechanism. Um, it's gamed a lot of the time, like you don't know whether they're authentic reviews. And you, it, you basically have to read the book yourself to figure out if it's going to suit your particular tastes. Um, genre doesn't really work either. Like if you look at all of the sci-fi, some of them, if you're a sci-fi fan, some of those stories you'll hate, some of them you'll love. And, you know, it's this really needle in a haystack process. And we have this huge industry of like paid advertising to try and game that. And it's like maybe LLMs can break that whole model. What if you had your own personal GPT style um, device that was filtering millions of titles and picking out the ones that suit your personal tastes? So basically what I'm hoping to do, um, I've read um, the last few years worth of Hugo um, finalist short stories, and I've rated them based on what I thought of them. And it was a really fun experience. So what yeah. I'm planning on doing is feeding those short stories to a GPT along with my ratings and seeing if I can train it to predict what my rating will be for the next story. I love it. I think that's such a brilliant idea. I hope that somebody listening can really dive into that because um, it's it's like using the large language module for its its best possible purpose, right? Mm, mm. Well, I mean, like, look at my book, like you're saying, you think it's wonderful, but it's just not cracking through the ecosystem to get attention. If you had a large language model scraping everything that was on Amazon, because they've all got like free excerpts, like you got the first chapter, and you can usually tell after one chapter if you like the style and the content. Um, so, yeah, it could be the ultimate, like, AI fighting AI. It could solve all of the problems that it's creating. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's brilliant. So, yeah, if there's anyone out there who that sounds like a really interesting project and they have experience in training LLMs, reach out to me on Twitter. If you just want to know more about my writing or my farming, you can find me on Twitter as well as Haldane B. Doyle or sign up to my email list on uh, my author website, haldanebdoyle.com. Um, yeah, just let's make it happen. Fantastic. It's such a fun time. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, I, I've been oh, looking Thank you for having me back. Thank you for listening to TRBM. The theme music was provided by the ever-talented Christopher Talon. And hey, if you liked what you heard, share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening?